Hebrews 20:20, we see Jesus increment 52. And we'll pray. Father, we pray that you will grant us a keener attentiveness than we've known before as we look into your word. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. We're discovering the advantage of examining the context of the verses of the Old Testament scriptures that the PT or the pastor theologian quotes or cites in Hebrews. In the last increment, we looked at the context of the quotations from Isaiah 8.17 and 8.18 in Hebrews 2.13, which the PT quotes as proof of the perfect solidarity of solidarity of the son with his people. And in fact, with all of humanity after the exhortation to sanctify the Lord and to be in reverential awe only of him in Isaiah eight thirteen, the prophetic Oracle in Isaiah eight goes on to say in eight fourteen. That if the readers of this prophetic sermon trust him, the Lord will become their holy precinct, their holy place, precinct as the New English translation of the Septuagint puts it. And as a result, they will not encounter him, that is the Lord, as a stone to stumble over or a rock to trip over. Paul uses that very same verse and the imagery in it in Romans 9, 32 and 33 while presenting the human problem and the divine solution to Israel's unbelief in Paul's own time. In Isaiah 8, 14, the prophet declares, quote, that the house of Jacob is is in a trap and that those who sit in Jerusalem are in a pit. It's impossible not to see a prophetic foreboding there of the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. In fact, Isaiah 8.15 blatantly predicts that, quote, many will become powerless and fall down and be crushed. And people who are in safety will draw near and be taken. This speaks of the pilgrimage to Jerusalem that would occur in A.D. 66, late A.D. 66 perhaps, which would result in disaster for so many people. Those who would normally be safe and secure in regions far away from Jerusalem drew near to Jerusalem in the late 60s A.D. Jesus referred to this in John 8.21 and 24, 8.24, when he said to the Pharisees, you will seek me and you will die in your sin. That means that many will come to Jerusalem in that A.D. 66 to 70 period, with the intention of seeking the Yahweh that they rejected in Jesus Christ, and they will die as a result of their unbelief or their sin. 
So those who would normally be safe and secure in regions far away from Jerusalem actually did draw near to Jerusalem in the late 60s AD in order to celebrate the Jewish feasts, only to be taken and enslaved by the bestial Roman Empire. These pilgrims made their pilgrimage to Jerusalem in the late 60s in a state of unbelief, not acknowledging that Jesus Christ once and for all sacrifice for all time had rendered all of their celebrations to be at best redundant and at worst a willful continuity in sin, as Hebrews 10.26 puts it. Isaiah goes on to say in 8.16 that those who seal up the law so that they might not learn would be manifested, and that means that the so-called experts in the Torah would be shown to be who they really are and manifested to be guilty of that which Jesus charged them of in Luke 11.52 where he said to them, You've taken away the key of knowledge. You didn't go in yourselves, and you hindered those who were going in. Sounds like today, many people lock up and hide the insights of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ and the universally saving and redemptive impact of the cross of Christ. They don't go into that insight themselves, and they lock up the vault so others can't go in. Then comes, in Isaiah 8, our two quoted verses. First, Isaiah 8.17 speaks of the one faithful Israelite who says, I will wait for God who has turned away his face from the house of Jacob, and I will trust in him. That's the quotation that we find in Hebrews 2.13 from Isaiah 8. 8.17. The PT rightly interprets this to be a word spoken by Jesus, the one and only faithful Israelite. In fact, the one and only representatively faithful man, the man Christ Jesus. And more than this, Jesus is the one whose faithful obedience through the death of the cross, would result in justification for all of humanity. And that's a theme that's made explicit later in, Deuter- in the Deutero-Isaiah, the second Isaiah, Isaiah 53.11, which Paul accommodates to his own argument in Romans 5.18. Then in Hebrews comes the second passage that the PT quotes. Here I am and the children whom God has given me. That's a declaration by Jesus of his solidarity with the children God gave to him. His solidarity, in fact, with all of humanity, but especially with his sanctified people in the present age. Jesus is the ultimate speaker in this quotation, as he is in the former quotation, and as he is the speaker in Psalm 22.22, or the Greek text 21.23, that's quoted in Hebrews 
Isaiah 8.18 is also a statement of the sanctifier's solidarity with the sanctified. So the theme runs throughout. The perfect solidarity of the Son with humanity, with all of humanity. Again, the writer of Hebrews recognizes that the one whom Isaiah prophesies will say, and who in fact has said, Effectively, in the days of his flesh, he said this, I will wait for God, who has turned away his face from the house of Jacob, and I will trust in him. That's Jesus talking about the Father. And then he says, here I am, and the children God has given to me. The one who says this is Jesus. He is the one. If you want to review Romans 5, 15 to 19, or the larger context, 5, 12 to 21, go right ahead and do that. He is the one whose faithful obedience and whose singular righteous act preserved and saved the many. He is the one and the only one who totally rejected lawlessness or the disobedience that Adam enacted And he embraced perfect righteous obedience. And he is the one who has been anointed with the royal oil of gladness, which went along with his coronation in Hebrews 1, 8 to 9. Even the inhabitants of Jerusalem, who endured the catastrophic judgment of AD 70, will be among the innumerable company who will yet see Jesus. And say, blessed is he who comes with the name Yahweh. That's Matthew 23, 39. And so this shows, as all the scriptures do, the scope and horizon of the redemption that Jesus secured. Hebrews 9, 12, compared with Romans 3, 24. The redemption that he secured in A.D. 30. By tasting death for everyone, Hebrews 2.9. By tasting death as God far from God. An almost unthinkable thing. (coughs) After Isaiah 8.17 to 18, the prophet shows the folly and the resulting gloom and despair of those who consult with demonic familiar spirits and who seek advice for the living from those who are dead, dead in trespasses. Isaiah prophesies about the country of Zebulon and of Naphtali, or Naphtali, toward the lake beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. People walking in darkness who see a great light. He adds that, quote, you who reside in the land of the shadow of death, a light shall shine upon you. Now that's Isaiah 9 as Isaiah 8 continues. Isaiah 9, 1 to 2, which is the Septuagint translation of 8, 23 to 9, 1. This is quoted also or cited in Matthew four fifteen to 16. That great light that they are to see, according to Isaiah's prophecy, 
is Jesus himself, who is the light of the world, not just the light of Israel, but the light of the nations and the light of the world in John eight twelve. So this prophecy of Isaiah began to be fulfilled when Jesus began his ministry in Galilee, which is actually mentioned in Isaiah 9. That indicates a direction. His ministry in Galilee indicates a direction toward the Gentiles, even though his primary mission was to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. For illustration of this, I recommend that you read Matthew 15, 21 to 29. I won't develop it further. The text of Isaiah's sermon, which we have seen already, goes really from Isaiah 8 through 13, chapters chapters 8 through 13. But the text of Isaiah's sermon then brings the prophecy where the prophet predicts a son in Isaiah 9-6 or the Septuagint of 9-5. That's the whole theme of Hebrews. God has spoken to us definitively and with finality, with salvific finality, in a son. And Isaiah also says, and a child is born for us. Jesus, whom the prophet calls, according to the Greek text of Isaiah 9-5, the messenger of the great intention. All of this is in the context of the passages or the verses that are quoted in Hebrews 2.13 from Isaiah 8.17 and 18. And that includes the messenger or the angel, literally the messenger of the great intention. And we are well aware of what that great intention is from previous studies. It's the mystery of God's intention or great will to sum up everything in Christ, to sum up everything savingly in his son, Ephesians 1, 9 to 10, as we've seen many, many times. Though we have only given a passing glance at the context of the quotations taken from Isaiah 8, I'm trying to stay fairly lean and close to the bone in our exegesis of Hebrews, but from our passing glance at the context of the quotations taken from Isaiah 8, it is notable that Isaiah 8 leads to the prophecy of the Son and to the great intention of God in him, an intention that amounts to such a great salvation, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. It is very notable, and I just saw this yesterday in studying Harold Atridge's commentary on Hebrews, it is notable that in an early Christian writing, I believe it's called the Apostolic Constitution, the writer equates the messenger of the great will or intention with your high priest. The writer writes to a group of people and he says, the messenger of the great intention is your high priest. And I've never seen a direct connection of the messenger of the great intention with the high priest or an identification with their high priest or our high priest with the messenger of the great intention. It's remarkable. Certainly the Hebrews author has connected both identities. That is the messenger of the great intention, the son given to us, the child born for us being Jesus. 
and being your high priest. This is found, I believe, in Atridge's book on page 102 and note 263. Certainly the Hebrews author then has done so. When we think of a priest, now think of what a, who a priest is. When we think of a priest, we think of a beneficent intercessor, not a harsh judge. Jesus endured the judgment of God by becoming perfected as a sin offering. That's another reason why he needed to be perfected. He had to be perfected or completed as a sin offering for us all. Now he has been perfected as a priest through the age who faithfully intercedes for us with the Father. He perfectly fulfills the functions of priest. The two main functions of priest are sacrifice, in his case, self-sacrifice and intercession. And he lives to make intercession for us. He, in an incorruptible life in Hebrews 7.16, lives to make intercession for us to save us to the uttermost point, the maximum point, that point being our bodily transformation or transfiguration of our physical bodies to be like his own body of glory. Philippians 3.20 to 21, connect that with Hebrews 7.25 and it'll mean something. So we look forward to judgment after our death. Once to die and after that the judgment. The judgment after our death is an act of grace in which our justification becomes our glorification. Now the practical upshot for us in our time and on the level of our own time of the exhortation that's found both in Isaiah 8 and Hebrews is this, and I would summarize it as this. Be more afraid, if we want to use that term, of the Lord's disapproval than that of man or of men. In our own time, those who are attempting to bring civilization down like to think of themselves as the counterculture and the vanguard of a brave new world. We're aware, however, that they are very self-deceived. We who belong to the Lord and who sanctify him in our hearts, Isaiah 8, 13, 1 Peter 3, 15, and all through Hebrews, and who only hold him in reverential and worshipful awe, we should not think that we are doing what the Lord wants. If we identify with this countercultural and often violent revolution against the established order. Not at all, because the revolutionaries and the establishment are both part of the same dominant culture of our time. We are not to be conformed into the mold of this age at all, but to be transformed by the making altogether new of our thinking by having our minds conform to the thinking and intentionality of Jesus Christ himself, in whom every person is a new creation. This can only be accomplished, this transformation, this renewal, this total renewal 
of our thinking and our intentionality, making our intentionality an obediential potency and a, 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 an intentionality of faith obedience can only be accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit who was given to us and who pours out the love of God in our hearts, Romans 5.5. 5. Now, on the eve of the fall of Jericho, when he was encountered by a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword, Joshua, General Joshua of the armies of Israel, approached this man with a sword in his hand, and he asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? The man answered, Neither. I have now come as commander of Yahweh's army, the Lord's army. Then Joshua, it says, bowed with his face to the ground in worship, and asked him, what does my Lord want to say to his servant? The commander of Yahweh's army said to Joshua, remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. You can read about that in Joshua five thirteen to 15. Joshua rightly prostrated himself before this man. For he was bowing to the divine man. He whom Ezekiel also saw with the form of a man and the radiance of Yahweh or the Lord. Ezekiel one twenty six to 28. We too stand on holy ground ground set apart and at a distance from all ideologies of our time, all humanistic endeavors, however moral or however upright they may appear. We stand apart from all ideologies and put ourselves at a distance from all human philosophies. We, we too stand on holy ground. We are the sanctified and he is the sanctifier. We stand where Jesus stands. He stands outside the camp and apart from all ideological and political causes. That doesn't mean that there isn't some nobility in some human causes. It simply means that we are not to commit ourselves and entrust ourselves to anyone or any cause, any human cause. We entrust ourselves to the Lord. We must be careful not to align ourselves with one or more of the many ideological causes that are springing up in our time like so many weeds. Neither must we fear the disapproval by followers of any trend, megatrend, or movement. Social clique, however popular or large, or ideological assemblage. We must rather fear, with a healthy reverence and awe, the disapproval of the Lord 
of the armies. And strive to be pleasing to him. As 2 Corinthians 5.9 says. In anticipation of our presentation. At the judgment seat of God and of Christ. The Lord is pleased. Only by faith. Hebrews 11.6. Or by what Paul called. A faith that works by love. In Galatians 5.6. So let's be loyal to the commander of the Lord's army, who is the champion of our salvation. And let's always be ready to say what Joshua said. And in fact, what Saul of Tarsus said on the road to Damascus when he saw the Lord. What does my Lord want to say to his servant? That's a honorable prayer what does my lord want to say to his servant we must always be available and attentive to listen to what the spirit says to the churches what he is presently speaking to the churches revelation 3:13 don't let the competing cacophony of voices in our time Drown out the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit. Those other voices arouse agitation in our souls. But the voice of the Holy Spirit speaks peace. Psalm 85, 8. And encouragement. Hebrews 13, 22. And often gentle, helpful rebuke. To the soul. Today, if you hear his voice, don't stiffen up and stiff arm God and harden your heart. Now, in Hebrews 2 14 to 15, entering into another phase of this message, Hebrews 2 14 to 15, see, we are making progress verse by verse, line upon line, here a little, there a little. The theme of the solidarity of the Son with the children continues. This verse contains a magnificent statement of the incarnation. Even though the writer's main aim is not so much doctrinal or theoretical as it is hortatory or for the purpose of imparting incentive and also to impart spiritual momentum to his hearers. Hebrews 2.14 to 15 reads like this, and we'll use this as our workable translation for now with a little bit of expansion. Consequently, since the children, that's Hebrews reference back to Hebrews 2.13 and a reference to Isaiah 8.18, and that also refers to the many sons and daughters or the brothers and sisters of Messiah the children whom God gave to Jesus, all these are the sanctified. So let's look at it again. Hebrews 2.14, Consequently, since the children have a share in blood and flesh, today's title is Hymatos Kai Sarkos. Hymatos Kai Sarkos. Blood and flesh, in that order. Since the children 
have a share in blood and flesh. So he also became a partaker of the same. That's his incarnation. He became partaker of blood and flesh like the children that he was going to be in solidarity with. So that through partaking in death, not only did he partake in our flesh and blood, our blood and flesh being, but he partook also in death. That goes from incarnation to the term that I like to use called instauration, crucifixion and death. And that by partaking in or experiencing death, he would render hors de combat, that means totally ineffective, unable to fight anymore, an enemy unable to fight anymore. He rendered hors de combat, the one who held dominion over death, that being the devil. Hodiablos here means the slanderer, whom Revelation 12.10 calls the accuser of our brothers and sisters. In verse 15, and liberate as many of those, which means all those who all their lives were held in slavery to the fear of death. Now let me read it in a little more compact translation. Hebrews 2.14 and 15. Consequently, since the children have a share in blood and flesh, so he also became a partaker of the same, so that through death he would render hors de combat the one who held dominion over death, that being the slanderer, and liberate as many of those who all their lives were held in slavery to the fear of death. Now, we're going to bring forth a few insights here that are not usually entertained in commentaries on Hebrews. The reasoning goes along here with that of Hebrews 2.10. It was fitting that God make the founder of their salvation, we could call that the founder of our salvation, perfect through suffering. The same theme abides here. Here it is fitting for the same reason And to the same end, that the son be made like his brothers and sisters by partaking in blood and flesh with them. We we all have this in common today. The many things that people are trying to say separate us are overcome and overwhelmed by the things that the Bible says unite us. We all partake of blood and flesh. He partook of the same. The word became flesh. And the word shed blood. Now as the suffering through which the son was perfected as a founder of their salvation included death, Hebrews 2.10 and also 2.9 and 10. So here in 2.14, the son partook of blood and flesh like his siblings so that through death, that is, through the death that he experienced for everyone, 
he would render the one who ruled the realm of death or de combat. That's the French phrase H-O-R-S-D-E-C-O-M-B-A-T. A phrase or de combat means unable to fight. Totally impotent and ineffective. The devil, the slanderer, who ruled in the domain of death, we could say, rendered powerless. This idea is repeated and expanded in Hebrews 2.17, that the eternal son, quote, had to be made like his siblings in every respect. But Hebrews 4.15 will come along and add a proviso to this by indicating that the son became like his brothers and sisters in everything except for sin. That is, except for human beings or humanity's systemic sinfulness. He did not partake of that. Though he was tested like his siblings, like us, in every way, like they are, like we are, he never yielded to sin. He knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He did no sin, 1 Peter 2.22. He had no sin, 1 John 3.5. And he did not at any point yield to sin, Hebrews 4.15, even under the severest of tests in which yielding to sin would grant him a reprieve from the awful pressure he was under. His very sinfulness, his impeccability, to use a theological term, was a prime qualification for his becoming the sin offering for all of sinful humanity and thus our perfect Savior. The spotless Lamb of God who takes away the systemic sinfulness of the world. People like to look at other people and say that in them there is some kind of systemic evil. In that whole group, there's a systemic evil. Democrats versus Republicans. Republicans versus Democrats. Libertarians versus both of them. People of one sect or another, religiously or socially, pointing to another. Ethnicities and races pointing to others, pointing to establishments. And ruling them to be altogether systemically one thing or another. That accusation always stems from a horrible evil called self-righteousness. The whole human race is riddled with the systemic sinfulness which Jesus Christ did everything to take away by his own self-sacrifice as a sinless lamb of God. That's the gospel. Get woke to it. You're not woke. Don't tell me you're woke because you're politically or socially aware of things. 
You aren't woke until you have wakened to Jesus Christ and until Christ shines on you in his universally saving significance. That's woke. Ephesians 5.14. I'm a preacher of the gospel and I'm set apart for that purpose. But even I get sick of the BS in our times. Well, preachers, I guess we have to call out the self-righteousness of our time. The reason I hate self-righteousness is because I'm so damn prone to it myself. It's a goal, like Paul put it. It's kind of a goal of life not to have any righteousness of our own or to glory in our flesh at all but to glory only in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and his righteousness for us. As Hebrews 9.14 says so eloquently, how much more shall the blood of Christ, the blood of Christ, he became a partaker of blood and flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead and inefficacious works to serve the living God. The theme remains the same. You've heard Led Zeppelin, the song remains the same. Well, here the theme remains the same in Hebrews 2.14 and following. The son's solidarity with humankind and the fittingness or the appropriateness of his suffering, including his suffering of death, to become our complete savior and the savior of the complete human race. To be the complete savior of humankind, the son would have to emancipate them not only from sin, but from something else that is systemic in humanity and suffered by all human beings in one way or another, that being the fear of death. In John 12, 31 to 32, and add 33 to it to show that when he spoke of being lifted up, he was talking about what kind of death he'd die. In Luke, in John 12, 31 to 33, the throwing out of the prince of this world. Now pay attention. The prince of this world is in tandem with Jesus being lifted up and with Jesus also promising to draw or drag all to himself. And in 1 John 3, 8, the scripture says plainly that the Son of God was manifested, and we know it. We know that the Son of God was manifested for this reason, to destroy the works of the devil, the evil one. Those works include probably most significantly the evil one's enslaving of billions of people to the fear of, of death 
And add to that fear of death, the fear of damnation after death. Compare 1 John 4, 17 to 18, that kind of fear that has torment. And they have this fear throughout the entirety of their lifetimes on this planet. The idea that's conveyed in this verse is that the slanderer, also known as the devil, is to be revealed. He's revealed here to be like Hades in mythology, the ruler of the domain called Thanatos or death. Death and Hades are fellow riders on the horse, the apocalyptic horse. In Revelation 6, the defeat of the prince's domain, being death, is the defeat of that prince. The defeat of the prince of a domain is the defeat of the domain. Again, Jesus put it most picturesquely or depicted it most clearly. By saying that when the strong man is overcome by the stronger man, the stronger man strips him of all the armament in which he trusted. Now, when Jesus, the stronger man, overcame the strong man, the evil one, he stripped him of his main weapon. The main weapon of the strong man was his ability to hold the fear of death over human beings, and by doing so, to get them to do his bidding. See 2 Timothy 2.26. Jesus made this all clear in a parable or kind of an analogy in Luke 11.21-22. In John 12.31-32 and John 16.11, Jesus made it explicitly clear, without a metaphor or a parable, that by his being lifted up on the cross and by that death, the prince of this world would be thrown out. It's important for us to recognize that the devil who is said, listen carefully, the devil who is said to have dominion over the domain of death is also called the prince of this world. Cosmos with a K. This world, therefore, in the scriptures, is identified with the domain of death. As God says in the Targum of Deuteronomy 32:39, I put to death in this world and make alive in the world to come. The prince of this world, John 14, 30, is called also the God of this age, 2 Corinthians 4, 3, and 4. This evil age, Galatians 1, 4, is the domain of death. This world and not hell, listen carefully, this world and not hell, is the power sphere of the devil, the slanderer, the liar, the man-killer. 
John 8, 44. In future world, the slanderer will have been thrown out altogether and the prince of peace in Isaiah 9, 6, Septuagint 9, 5, will rule uncontested. Now again, in Galatians 1, 4, it was well known and well-known Christian tradition, and well-known that according to the scriptures, Christ died for our sins. That's not only Galatians 1.4, but we can refer also to 1 Corinthians 15.3 for that. It was Paul who had the additional apocalyptic insight, which he added to that traditional gospel truth, And he declared that Christ died for our sins, listen carefully, in order to deliver us or to rescue us from this present evil age. It does not say there that Christ died for our sins to save us from hell but to rescue us from this present evil age. You see, this world is where the slanderer, the liar, the man killer, the accuser of our brothers and sisters, the brothers and sisters and siblings, that is, of Jesus, the Son of God, he is actively blinding the minds of the unbelieving, and that includes Christians who do not believe in the universally saving significance of their Savior, Jesus Christ. Never assume what's not in the Bible. Never assume that the thief who did not pray to Jesus, remember me, was excluded from Paradise, it does not say he was excluded from paradise just because Jesus told the one who asked him to remember him that he would be with him in paradise. One thing we do know about the three men who were crucified, two, one on either side of Jesus Christ, one thing we do know and that we can make emphatic about is that all three were crucified and that those two thieves were crucified with Christ and being crucified with Christ They live because Christ died for all. All died, including both criminals on the cross. And they will both be risen. Both of them. Don't use that, your little self-righteous argument against universal salvation, because one naughty thief went to hell, your hell, and one good thief who recognized Jesus went to paradise. Don't Try that self-righteous bullshit on me. I'm tired of it. And I use that term and what a former pastor that I used to have called sanctified slang. Sanctified slang. The prophets all used it. Paul used it in Philippians 3, 7, 8. So don't act shocked. Okay. Now then, it's very important that we recognize that it's not the truth of the gospel, but the imaginative human mythology 
It's an imaginative human mythology coming from Plato and others that portrays the devil as the ruler of the domain called hell. That is, Plato believed in an eternal hell. The Bible reveals the devil instead to be the prince of this world, this world, the prince ruler of the air and the director of airborne spirits in Ephesians 2.2, in opposition to God and his people, a spirit being who, quote, activates the sons of disobedience into his own form of activism against God and against the brothers and sisters of Christ. The realm of the dead, listen carefully, the realm of the dead is this world. Human beings in this world are dead in trespasses, says Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, 5, or dead while they live in 1 Timothy 5, 6. They are the walking dead. Long before they're dead in graves or in urns, they're dead in trespasses. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, one of the paramount petitions he included was, deliver us from evil. Which may better be translated as, deliver us from the evil one. That includes from doctrines of demons. Like, you're going to hell if you're not a good boy or a good girl. To deliver us from the evil one is to rescue us from the evil age in which the evil one wields the power of death. To defeat the one who has power over death and to rescue humanity from the present evil age, the son suffered. In fact, he suffered and died for our sins in order to rescue us not from some mythical eternal hell, but from our sins in Matthew one twenty one, and from this evil age in Galatians one four. I hope you're getting some of these things straight. Already, while still in the cosmos, already, even now, while still in this cosmos and in this age, in it but not of it, we who have become woke really woke, not fake woke, not self-righteous woke, not racist woke. We who have become woke to the gospel are urged not to be conformed to this age, but to be transformed by the making entirely new of our worldview, by the entire renovation of our thinking right in the mainspring of our minds. The renewal of our thinking results in transformation by which we begin to be conformed into the image of the Lord and by which we begin to live with the life of the coming age. A messianic age, a Christ age, age, which has already come with the, ex, with the eternal son's participation in blood and flesh.
and then death and resurrection. This transformation makes us able to experience the age to come and to be a practical part of the new creation instead of falling apart with the old creation. Only the Holy Spirit can bring this about. I said only the Holy Spirit. No therapist, no pastor, no pope, no bishop can bring it about. No counselor, no psychiatrist can bring it about. This transformation can only be brought about by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.23 in the New Living Translation, the NLT, I think they got it right, says, let the Spirit, capital S, Spirit, renew your thoughts and attitudes. Now we're back to Hebrews' exhortation. Today, if you hear the Holy Spirit's voice, which is being spoken today, don't harden your hearts. Hebrews 3, 7 to 8, and 4, 7. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes, your disposition. This is the most important thing we can do now and for the rest of our lives while we are in but not of this world, all while it's called today. Perhaps one thing over all others, and I want to close with this last phase, the third phase of our message. One thing over all others does distinguish woke believers, people who have been awakened to faith and to the vision of the universally saving Christ. That which distinguishes them from those who have not yet been awakened to have Christ in his universally saving glory shine on them, Ephesians 5.14. That one thing is that those who are woke, as I define woke, or awakened to faith and to see Jesus, they no longer have, we no longer have, the fear of death as the root of our decisions and the motivator of our actions. Every fear, every fear that human beings have is rooted in the fear of death. And thanks to those who have distorted the scriptures into damnable heresies, this fear of death is aggravated by the fear of damnation and eternal punishment after death. Whether someone who has this fear forces it into the subconscious mind, as I tried to do, or whether one lives in abject terror of a fiery eternal hell, which I had as a young man, the effects of this fear are profound and debilitating, crippling, and disabling. They create an evil conscience, as Hebrews 10.22 calls it, which robs people of any possibility of joy or even of life itself and enjoying life. Deprived of joy, fearing 
death, people go for chemical or sensual, sexual, or psychological relief. They try to find themselves in alternative realities, separate realities, which aren't the reality that is defined by Jesus Christ. They bury themselves in work or in video games or get involved in some social cause, whether worthy one or not. They bet on everything in the hopes of winning and getting above the misery. As Thoreau observed, they live lives of quiet desperation. Sometimes that quiet desperation erupts like a volcano. Even when it remains so-called quiet, this desperation has devastating effects on the soul and the psyche. To be conformed to this age is simply to be molded by the fear of death and the lies of the slanderer. To be transformed by the renewing of our mind is to be liberated from the fear of death into life and that more abundantly lived. John 10.10b Just by no longer living with the fear of death, a person is already radically altered for the better. How much more when that person lets the mind of Christ be in them? Philippians 2.5, 1 Peter 4.1 and 2, Colossians 3.14 to 16. Philippians 1.8. Philippians 3.15, 1 Corinthians 2.16. The fear of death is handily defeated by the inner insight and by the soul seeing the great light of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ and of the universally saving, redemptive, rectifying, reconciling impact of the cross of Christ. Thank you, Father. Continue to grant us unparalleled attentiveness as we continue in the study of Hebrews 2020, that we and that may our generation see Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen.